This morning I would like to share with you concerning setting the stage for the Antichrist. And I want to turn, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'd really like to bite into this passage. This is what we call a chair text, a platform text. This is a very critical passage for us. Many of our critics are of the persuasion that this passage is our Achilles heel, that this is difficult for pre-trib immanentalists. As a matter of fact, John Nelson Darby himself, who had been in the Church of Ireland, had served a parish, was fired by his bishop because he was leading so many Catholics to Christ. One of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren, as we call them, or the Christian Brethren, it was this passage that cinched it for Darby that the coming of Christ, the rapture is imminent and to be differentiated from seven years later, the coming in power and in great glory to set up the kingdom and rule for a thousand years. This was the passage that did it for Darby. We're looking in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and are gathering together to him, that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Little mild rebuke there, I would judge. We'll continue on. I'm reading from the NASB. The Thessalonian letters of Paul are just bulging with references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, that's no surprise that seven of the eight chapters to the Thessalonians hinge on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in either one of the two, in the two-stage second coming of Christ. One verse out of four in the New Testament deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ. The church is to be an apocalyptic community. Paul Johnson, the English historian, says the early church 
was a loosely organized revivalistic association waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Even Eugene Peterson says, everything that Christians are supposed to be and to do is pressed on us by the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is critical. To those who look for him, he will appear as in all of the epistles, even Hebrews 9 and 10, James chapter 5. Folks, we Christians are the people of the future. We're the Easter people. We're the sons and daughters of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're the people before the time. Ultimately, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But we're already doing that. We've got an, a leg up. We're bowing the knee and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The powers of the age to come have broken through into this present evil age. The eschatological verdict on my soul has already been pronounced. That's justification by faith alone. There is therefore now no condemnation. I'm not waiting to see how it's going to turn out. The verdict of the ultimate judgment has already been pronounced for the believer in Jesus Christ. And we're living in the now and not yet tension. I can't tell you how deeply grieved I am that I find it so difficult to get my young preachers. Now, you have to understand I'm a homiletician, homiletics. I was introduced in one place as a professor of home economics. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm a homiletician. That's the art, the craft, the science of preaching. It is so difficult to get my young preachers to preach on the second coming. And our evangelical churches are a lot of them that way. And I say, come on now. They say, I don't want to get near it. It's so controversial. Well, I say, what, what isn't controversial in the Christian life? I mean, this, 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 is, this is of the, of the very essence. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, you notice these were common themes. Notice that fifth verse. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? In the short interval of time he spent with the Thessalonians, he gave them massive injections of eschatology. And this is of the essence of what Christianity is. There in the first chapter, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait up for his Son from heaven. Folks, you can't wait up for something that couldn't happen. When we come right down to it, Sweetie and I, I can remember when our firstborn, a daughter, Lori, had her first date. Curfew was 11 o'clock. Now, Sweetie and I usually go to bed after the news, 10.30, Central Standard Time. <laughs> you don't have that joy on the 
East Coast. But um, folks, on this particular night, we waited up. Do you know what I'm saying? In fact, we were looking through the curtains. And the car drove up into the driveway at, uh, at 10.59 and a half, which was appreciated. But she didn't come in. Listen, we were waiting up. Do you know what I'm saying? Then I did something for which I've never been forgiven. I flickered the garage light a couple of times. <laughs> yes, we were waiting up. Six times Jesus says, watch for my coming. How can you watch for something that couldn't conceivably come, don't you see? This is imminence, folks. And now in the second chapter, Paul makes a request to those of his hearers with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are gathering together to him. They're, they're looking, they have been looking for the rapture. This has been developed, of course. How could anyone be in any doubt that Jesus could come at any moment? Look back at the 21st chapter of John. It's something we sometimes overlook. When Peter asks in John 21, 21, what's gonna to happen to John? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Well, the saying therefore went out among the brethren that that disciple John would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? Jesus didn't rebuke Peter at this point and say, well, I mean, what, what an outrageous idea that anyone could live until I come. No, he's recognizing there is the possibility of the any moment coming of Jesus from the first century to this very century. And my friends, although it's not easy to stand on tiptoes for 2,000 years, remember, if a day is as a 1,000 years with the Lord, it's only been two days since Jesus was here. So look, let's not get into a lather or a froth that somehow the Lord is lackadaisical or slow in keeping his promises. He's going to come. But the Thessalonians are troubled. They're perturbed. They're looking for Jesus. And just in the course of nature, some of the dear saints, the chronologically gifted particularly, are dying. And you remember how Paul addresses their apprehensions in 1 Thessalonians 4. Don't think that they're going to miss out on something because they die before the rapture. In fact, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. But further complicating the situation, notice verse 2. Here you've got some of these prophetic crazies and loonies at work, and they're always nipping around at our heels don't be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us a forgery to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There were some who were alleging that the day of the Lord, an expression 
found first really in Isaiah and then in virtually all of the prophets, referring to that epic of judgment at the end of history, the messianic woes, as the Jews used to speak of it, the rabbis. This is the seven-year tribulation period, the day of the Lord, you know, the day of the outpouring of the wrath of the Lamb upon the inhabitants of the earth. This is where our mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib people have such a problem. They've got to try to argue that some part of the seven years is not actually exposure to the wrath of the Lamb. Because manifestly, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we're not appointed to wrath. The church is not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And the promise of Revelation 3.10 to the church at Philadelphia stands. Well, some in Thessalonica, particularly under severe persecution, gave credence to these false teachings that the day of the Lord was here and that they'd missed the rapture. It almost sounds like there were some partial rapture people who were talking here. Maybe some had gone, but there are at least some of us who are still left. You know, we've always had dear people like Pember and Govet and D.M. Panton, Watchman Nee, A.B. Simpson, the early Campbell Morgan, who believed that a part of the church, the overcomers would be taken. And then you've got the Sarkikos or carnal Christians. They're going to go through the tribulation, you know, and miss the millennium in a kind of purgatorial dark passage. Folks, there's one verse that takes care of the partial rapture. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The church will not be fractured or fissured. We're all going to go. If anybody goes, we all go. Folks, we're going to go together. Meet him in the meeting in the air. But this idea that the day of the Lord had already come was deeply discombobulating some of the Thessalonian believers. And Paul says in verse 3, Now let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless... Now two signs. Remember, the rapture is signless. If any sign had to be fulfilled before the imminent return of Jesus Christ, it wouldn't be imminent. Well, the temple must be built. We've got to have a worldwide revival. You know, I pray we'll have a visit of the Holy Spirit, the precedent being the stirring at the end of the southern kingdom in the days of King Josiah. Do you remember almost at the end, too late to change the ultimate outcome, but there came a moving of the Spirit? I love that story of the revival in the days of King Josiah. Who was that prophetess, Hulda? That's the only Swedish lady mentioned in the Bible. And she opens up the book of the law. I take it the book of Deuteronomy. But, but if you say it must happen before the rapture, you have denied imminency. Folks, that, that is not right. Now, Paul says there are two signs of the coming of the day of the Lord. The first is apostasy. Now, I acknowledge some dear brothers, a very small, minuscule minority, I think Schuyler English was the first 
to really get onto this, as far as I can see in his rethinking the rapture. Uh, he, he wonders if apostasis could mean the rapture itself, which would be quite a coup in a passage like this. But I think we have to stick with the majority interpretation. Apostasis, to stand away from, to fall away from, there's going to be a massive apostasy. Now, folks, there have always been false teachers. There have always been apostates. But, folks, as we draw toward the end of space-time history as we have known it, there is going to be a massive apostasy. We're seeing what we call today post-Christian times in the West. This is a massive move away from the supernatural gospel. And folks, we're seeing, no one knows when Jesus is coming, but we're seeing apostasy today on a humongous scale. What is the emergent church with its abandonment of any truth claim? What, what is prosperity theology? One of the leaders says, land, land, land. God has promised us land, the church. Every Christian should claim land. You're taking the promise given to Israel. They have the promise of landedness 16 times, precisely, minimally 16 times. The church, the heavenly people of God have never been promised land at all. Now, this is apostasy. This is sweeping. This prosperity theology is in danger of hijacking world Pentecostalism entirely, and it has made significant inroads into evangelical life. Folks, it's, it's very dangerous. The softening on inerrancy on every side, the move away from the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, this is apostasia. And it's going to grow and it's going to spread the Laodicean condition of the end time. This is a sign. And Paul says that, that great Massive apostasy. It's not yet in evidence. This is not a sign we can see. And what is furthermore, the man of lawlessness must be revealed. Now, this is the Antichrist. Twenty different names are given to this malign personality. This is Satan's masterpiece, the Antichrist. There are many Antichrists John says, many who are against Christ, who speak against Christ, but there is coming the Antichrist. Folks, the devil is not stupid. He knows that the Christ event, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, climaxing in his death and resurrection, now is the prince of this world cast out. He knows he doesn't have any hope at all. That was V-Day. He doesn't know the date of V-Day, Victory Day, the, the second coming in power and glory to set up the kingdom and, and the whole wrap-up of human. He does not know that date. He's an avid student of Scripture. The devil can quote Scripture for his own purpose. But folks, this shows 
the nature of evil and the satanic rebellion in that his motivation, if he, if he knows he's not going to win, what keeps him going so furiously and so frantically, so brazenly and so boldly? It's the nature of evil to destroy, to malign, to cripple, to absolutely bring misery. That's, he wants to thwart God. He wants to do as much damage as he can before he's finally quashed. That's the nature of evil. How could we be hoodwinked to want to have any part of that cabal? Well, the Antichrist. Now, there's going to be a climactic expression. Satan's last final effort in space-time history as we have known. At the end of the millennium, there'll be one more feint. But these seven years, this is when he gives it all he's got. This is when he pulls the stops out. And when the man of sin, his masterpiece, the Antichrist, this is the little horn of Daniel 7. This is the king of fierce countenance of Daniel 11. This is the beast from the sea in Revelation 13. Folks, the sin of man will climax in the man of sin. The Antichrist. And Paul says, we couldn't be in the tribulation yet because the son of perdition has not been revealed. Folks, we're not going to see the Antichrist. Now remember, the devil doesn't know when Jesus is going to return, so the devil has got to have an Antichrist ready to go in every age. Just think, I think he's got a special demonic committee grooming the Antichrist so that he's in the wings just ready to be shoved out into action as soon as the church is gone. We'll see that in a moment. The Antichrist, folks, now look. You take Cain, Lamech with his song of the sword, Nimrod the warrior. You take Balaam the seducer. You take Goliath. You took take Cushion Russian Tham, you take Nebuchadnezzar, you take Sennacherib, you take Antiochus Epiphanes, you take Herod the Great, you take Julian the Apostate, you take Genghis Khan, take Napoleon, take Adolf Schickel Gruber alias Adolf Hitler, take Joseph Stalin who killed 60 million people. You put all of those tin hat dictators, despots, and tyrants, put them all together in a human personality, and you've got a little idea of what this Antichrist is going to be like. I mean, the Antichrist, listen, when he strides out on the stage of history, it's not only wow, it's wow, 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 wow. That's going to be the coming of the Antichrist, and, and Paul's arguing, he's not here. And if we were in the tribulation, as some are telling you, we'd see the Antichrist, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He takes his seat in the temple of God. Folks, how could anyone deny there's going to be a tribulation temple? Jesus refers to this, drawing on Daniel 9, 24 to 27. 
Here's Paul's reference, the Antichrist taking his place in the temple of God in Jerusalem, what the Muslims call Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount. They deny there was ever a Jewish temple there, which is historical revisionism with such a vengeance, it's, it's pathetic. And Revelation 11 refers to measuring the temple in the tribulation. Of course there's going to be a temple. And the Antichrist will set himself up in the temple. I'm just reading the Word of God. Displaying himself as being God. Now verse 6. You know what restrains him now. Folks, there is a reality restraining the revelation, the coming, the disclosure of the man of sin. This last, final, abortive spasm of Satan to challenge God and his purpose. You know what restrains him, so that in his time he may be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Wish I had another hour to just exegete and develop the mystery of lawlessness at work. It is all around us the dark things. Even our papers, secular papers, are raising the question. Some of these big selling summer flicks, these movies, are they too dark for children? There's a darkness, a darkness abroad. You can feel it, don't you? The mystery of lawlessness, lawlessness. The world does not grasp or understand that we who are burdened by the murder of the unborn, by the radical redefinition of what marriage and the family are, they think we're just some kind of airheads, some kind of stupid old troglodytes. Folks, we just want to respect the law and authority of God. God has addressed these issues. But the mystery of lawlessness is at work. Anarchy and chaos. Chaos theory is an interesting thing to contemplate in our time. A trend in physics right now. But then the lawlessness, the lawless one, verse 8, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. We know about that from the end of Revelation. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. Now, who is this in verse 7 who restrains? Many, many interpretations, but the main interpretation among us I think is sound. This is the Holy Spirit in his dispensational fullness as he indwells the church. And when the church is removed, then that dispensational fullness of the Spirit from Pentecost to the rapture will no longer obtain. This isn't to say the Holy Spirit isn't in the world. He's been in the world, Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the deep. I mean, how were people converted in the Old Testament? In the days of the Gospels when Jesus preached before Pentecost. And how will people be saved in the tribulation or in the millennium? Through the Holy Spirit. But this is particularly, as Joachim of Fiore said in the 12th century, this is the age of the Holy Spirit as he indwells the church. An inept 
as the church frequently is, and a humiliation to us. I'm hearing more and more, Jesus, yes, the church, no. The church is a mess. But folks, with all of its ineptitude, it is the salt, it is the light, and I'd hate to think of any community in which the church were totally removed and every believer raptured. Folks, that is removing the restrainer. All restraint is gone. And when the church is gone, people ask me sometimes, how soon after the rapture will the man of sin be revealed? I don't think it's going to take long. Listen, he'll be ready in the wings, and he'll be shoved out onto the stage of human history. He'll stride out boldly and brazenly. Listen, Satan is eager to get going. And the first horseman of Revelation 6, he's going to ride through the world. Now, he's facing a very chaotic world. I think one of the first things that's going to happen after he steps forth is you've got the invasion I expounded the other morning, Ezekiel 38 and 39, Russia with Islamofascism. This would be a challenge to his power, but they will be destroyed on the mountains of Israel. Now the kings of the east, 200 million strong, bound at the river Euphrates, Revelation 9 and 16, don't have time to go into that. Sometime I'd like to share with you the kings of the East. Who are they? Time magazine 10 years ago had an article, there is one nation which can field 200 million fighting men. People's Republic of China. Ah, kings of the East. They play a part in this. But with the restrainer gone in his dispensational fullness, the church exited. He now has clear field to pursue his nefarious objectives. Now this lawlessness, this lawless one, verse 8, will be revealed. Notice verse 9, his coming. Now, I hate to use a Greek word, pardon, parousia. Same word used of the coming of the Lord. The coming of the man of sin. Folks, this is going to be impressive. This is going to be spine tingling. This is going to be a powerful and emotive event whose coming, in accord with the energizing of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Yes. Tremendously impressive. Well, my friends, we're very gullible people to power, signs, and false wonders. First, it was the Toronto blessing where they were vomiting in the spirit and replacing base metals in, t in the teeth with gold fillings, as if our God is concerned what kind of fillings we have in a world that's bound for hell. Such twaddle. Then it's Pensacola, and now it is Lakeland, Florida. Have you been watching this man, Bentley? He's drawing thousands from all over the world. They're coming down. This Bentley, 
He claims he's had an interview with the Apostle Paul. He has daily confabulation with angels, and people are going out as sick as they went in. But we are gullible, and the Antichrist will pull out all the stops. This coming in the energies of Satan with all the deception of wickedness, verse 10, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They could be saved if they will love the truth and believe on Jesus. My friends, I don't know when Jesus is returning, but I'll tell you, I believe the stage is being set for the Antichrist. I think that religious apostasy is the one great preparation for the final world church, the great harlot of which we heard from Doug Bookman. I think that globalization, which is a fact, the interdependence of nations economically, increasingly politically, is a preparation for the world government. Folks, the problems are so multitudinous and so profound. What world ruler has any kind of popularity at all? Who's got the smarts to handle the environmental and the economic, the political, the social, the demographic problems? World rulers, they don't know where to turn. There will emerge one to whom they will turn. In God's own time and way, the problems are just too complicated. And there will emerge smiling and suave the world leader groomed by Satan, demonic in his every aspect, I will lead you. The whole world will follow the beast. Originally, Israel will follow the beast. They'll make a seven-year covenant. But at the midpoint of the tribulation, they break that covenant. He breaks his covenant with Israel. Why? The two Prophets, the two witnesses of Revelation 11 have been working on them from Jerusalem, dear friends, interpreting to them the defeat of their enemies on the mountains of Israel, Ezekiel 38 and 39. God always has a witness. And I believe that 144,000 will be converted at the midpoint of the tribulation. And they will be then witnesses through the whole world. And the sheep nations will respond to them. Some will be sheltered down in Petra, to be sure, because there will arise an animus, a worldwide anti-Semitism. Last issue of The Economist talking about last week's Southern European conference very interestingly describing how this conference is discussing a union, listen to what they say, the Mediterranean north and south is now forming a single economic union. Globalization is bringing a wave of money to the southern rim of the old Roman Empire. The Economist. There are at least five pages in here in which we read again and again about the rebirth of imperial Rome northern and southern Europe. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, 
and from the sea. He is vomited up upon the land and told, go to Nineveh and preach again. This time he went, somewhat reluctantly, but Jonah went the second time and Nineveh repented. Folks, what's the result of the ministry of the 144,000? The vanguard of all Israel saved, of the natural branches grafted into the olive tree. What's the result? A great unnumbered multitude from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue coming out of the tribulation, it says. That's not the church. Those are the tribulation Gentiles saved through the witness of redeemed, converted, and witnessing Israel. Folks, we're living in fascinating times. May we be as the sons of Issachar who understand the times and know what the people of God ought to do. Now, dear Lord, we know not the day nor the hour, but it would seem as we look about us, there is a confluence of signs, so many indications the end could be at hand. We had better not presume that we have unlimited time to do the work you've called us to do to win those who are outside of our blessed Lord and Savior, our dear loved ones and friends and neighbors. Oh, dear God, we know where we're going to be a thousand years from now. We know where we're going to be a million years from now. Praise be to God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.